This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning. Good morning, Trinity. It's good to be with you. Um, Let me warn you in advance, today is about sadness and deep despondency. And I want to I want to begin up front uh, by telling you about your God because we must never lose sight of this. The God of the universe, he who designed you and made you, he is not clumsy, he is not superficial, he is never surprised or capricious, he is not foolish, he is wise. He is perfectly wise, and he loves you. Please never lose sight of that, because today we are going to study the saddest psalm. And if you read the psalms, you know, even the saddest ones, they always end with like a little silver lining. Well, that grace does not come today. It ends and sadness. You know, the Psalms are kind of like a Spotify list. We talked about how they're the the songs of ancient Israel. And so if you were playing your Spotify hymn list, right, there different songs would come up and there would be songs of celebration and songs of gratitude and songs of confidence. But there would also be songs with a different tone, a dark tone. And that's what we get today. That's really important that as we study this, that you understand that God put Psalm 88 in the Bible. It was God. And the Bible is not unaware of suffering and sadness. It's not unaware of depression. And in fact, the Bible is incredibly realistic. Listen, you guys, not everyone gets a happy ending in this life. There is a real misery that some of us must walk to the very end with no happy ending. But however sad the psalm is, there's a grace in its realistic outlook, in its authenticity, its honesty about suffering and depression. You know, there's other responses to these things. You have like the Eastern response. Well, what what is the Eastern response? That suffering is just an illusion. It's not real. That a physical brokenness just needs to be trans, uh, transcend, you know, you need to transcend it, right? There's even kind of a weird Western religious response that is not good. Maybe you even grew up in that tradition. And it says, like, if you just had enough faith, if you just prayed enough, you wouldn't suffer. You could get through this. You just memorized enough Bible. If you're just good enough. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It's far more realistic. Some Christians face deep troubles, unrelieved troubles that never go away in this life. And there's not always a happy ending. And, and Psalm 88 sees that person. It sees that person. 
It's good that, that God tells us these things because um, there are well-intentioned Christians who say the most awful things to those people who are in the valley, right? We become impatient with our brothers and sisters who are in a dark place and, and they, see, they can't seem to come out of it, right? You know, these are our brothers and sisters who are saying, I, I believe in God, I trust God, I trust in his, in his promises, but they're having a hard time of it. And, and they can't seem to come out of the depth of their circumstances. And their hearts, they just, their hearts can't catch up to what they know and what they believe. And it's so lonely. And, and, then, and then when you come to church and all you get are, are these sort of happy, clappy songs, it, it just makes things worse. And that person feels so lonely. Where can Christians go who are suffering terminally sad moments of their life, where can they go to sing? They get Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is actually filled filled with really important and great truths about life in this broken world. And that if we learn them for the one who is suffering, you'll actually learn how to think about your melancholy And if you are walking with someone in that place of melancholy, you're going to learn how to think about their lives and their melancholy. Because what I hope we're going to do today is that we would all grow more empathetic for the the prisoner, the, the prisoner of their own melancholy, of their own depression and sadness. We will all grow more empathetic with the prisoner if we could look around and understand the prison. I think that's what Psalm 88 is going to do. Because listen, you guys, Trinity is a lot of things. And we are an imperfect church. And we don't have all the perfect ministries set up. But under my shepherding, we will not be a superficial church. We're not going to blow this off. We're going to lean deep into this. We're not going to be trite. We're not going to give pat answers to people who are in the valley. I hope Psalm 88 helps us with that. So without further introduction, I want to invite you to stand. And uh, we are going to read the entirety of Psalm 88, not just the first 12 verses, the whole part. And it's on the first and second page there in your bulletin. Here now, Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to the Mahalath, Leonoth, a maskil of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. 
My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, From my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My my companions have become darkness. And thus ends the reading of God's own words. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of sadness are for us in this life. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've heard me preach much, you would know, you'd remember that the way I normally organize a sermon is I kind of have a central thought, and then I have maybe two or three points that I use to, to take the text to develop that one central thought. Today, what I want to do is a little bit different. I'm going to give us an outline, kind of show us the logic of Psalm 88. And then I'm just going to try to extrapolate four great truths for us, for the people of God today. Let's begin just with the outline. Verses 1 and 2, it opens with a prayer. It's an unanswered prayer, right? He's saying, I've I've been doing this day and night, and I haven't heard back, right? And then from verses 3 to 9, you'll see in your text, it, it describes the pain, the prison, and it assigns the source of this pain. He's telling us who's behind this all. And then in verses 10 through 12, the psalmist, this guy suffering, he, he formulates an argument against God in his prayer. And then verses 13 through 18, he continues in this prayer without any reply. And that's the logic of this psalm. Now, the, let's begin with the great truth. The first great truth is this, is that God-honoring faith is often ugly faith. God-honoring faith is often ugly faith. You know, it was a few months ago now, I was writing my very uh, final sermon to La Travesia, the church that planted us, and you know, this is this church that I have, you know, planted and I was with. These are, these are my people. And as I was in my room writing the sermon, it was like, I was all by myself, but I was like ugly crying. <laughs> Y'all know what ugly crying is, right? Like we start like snotting all over yourself and like you're making like really odd noises because you're just like so sad. Like I was ugly crying. There is a thing called ugly face. So I, the same way I had ugly crying instead of dignified crying, you know, just like one cute little tear, right? There's also ugly faith, you know? Dignified faith, right? Dignified is the one where all life is going good, right? And we, we pray a really nice prayer in front of a delicious meal. 
and we're with each other, and it's nice. And we really believe God. We trust God. It's dignified faith. But listen, there's this thing called ugly faith, too. Look there in, in verse 13, just to show you a little bit of it. He says, O Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes to you. Oh, Lord, verse 14, why do you cast my soul away? Like, Lord, why is this happening? I don't get it. Why are you hiding your face from me? I'm praying here and I don't even see your face. Look at me, God. Look at me. Where are you? It's ugly. Verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your tears. I am helpless. What are you doing? I am mad. And I am sad. That might sound like complaining because it's raw. But listen, it's real faith. Ugly faith is real faith. See, when you and I pray beautiful prayers, these abundant prayers, they're real, but they do not take as much faith As this guy, right? See, look, in verse 1, he says, I cry out. And by the way, the words cry out means I pray. That's just the best word for it. I cry out day and night. Like, he's not stopping. But in verse 16, dreadful assaults surround me like a flood all day long. Day and night I'm praying, and dreadful assaults are coming day and night. And that guy keeps crying out, keeps praying. Why would he? It's like, that's real faith. For that guy to keep that up day and night says something about his faith. Because he's not seeing God's face. And he keeps praying. That is faith. His prayer is messy, but it is insistent. And he doesn't stop. And he doesn't even know if anyone's on the other line listening. And he is praying. Of course it's ugly faith. He's mad. And he's sad, but it is real faith. Because ugly faith is God-honoring faith. Great truth number two. The darkness that we sometimes experience finds its source both internally and externally. It's both internal and external darkness. And let me explain. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave them a real physical body And he also gave to them an immaterial but reasonable soul. And these two go together. To be human means that you have a body and a soul, and they're inseparably tied to each other. And so when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin entered the world, and with it, misery and brokenness. And because we are a body-soul nexus, it means then that the darkness we experience can be both internal and external, you see. And that's actually what we see with the psalmist. He acknowledges both. So like in verse 8, look there. He says, you've caused my companions to shun me. See, the, the psalmist is, extra, is describing this, these external circumstances, right? A kind of trauma that have awoken this thick, dark, unrelenting cloud, right? But that's not the only kind of darkness that's described here, right? Because before that, 
Look there in verse 3. He says, For my soul is full of troubles. That's like an Old Testament way of saying depression. I I want you all to listen real closely. But Christians, people who love Jesus, can be depressed. Christians can be depressed. And some of you might have come from a tradition that has no respect or a very low view of psychiatrists and psychologists. And we, of course, acknowledge that there can be abuses, and there are. Like people just throwing pills at everything. Of course, that is an abuse. But the abuse of a thing does not negate its proper use because God made us both physical body and soul, you see. In fact, the Bible's littered with examples of people who struggled with depression. You have Job, Elijah, David. We have the psalmist. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul, the theologians, many theologians think that the thorn in his side was unrelenting depression. That's what many believe. We're not sure. But even Jesus himself, as the great Charles Spurgeon says, that even Jesus in his fullest humanity had a season of deep melancholy in the Garden of Gethsemane when he believed that his God was abandoning him. And not just in the Bible, but great, great people of history, Christians in history, St. Augustine, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther King Jr., and of course, who I just mentioned, Charles Spurgeon, crippling, crippling depression most of his life that he died with, debilitating, debilitating depression. I have friends, I have friends who love Jesus. They love Jesus. And they will report that there will be this this moment, and they can't explain it, where they're fine, and all of a sudden this cloud descends upon them. And it is, it's disability. They say, God, it feels like God's abandoning me, and it gives them anxiety and fear. And sometimes it's just for a moment, sometimes it's for weeks, sometimes it's for months. And then they'll say, they can't even explain it, but then the the cloud will part and it'll go away and they don't even know why it comes and goes. These are people who love Jesus. I want us to be really patient with them. The Bible is really realistic about these things. Events and circumstances can, of course, trigger us a trauma, but also can just come from the inside, just an internal melancholy. And we don't know why it comes and leaves. The darkness we experience is both internal and external. Here's the third great truth. You can cause a double wound when you do not recognize that depression and melancholy is physically inhibiting. You can cause a double wound on a sufferer when you don't recognize that this melancholy can be physically inhibiting. Now, I want you to think about it like this. If you saw a woman who works in your office and she was in a car accident, she broke both of her legs and she broke both of her arms. 
She's fine otherwise, but she's got these casts on both of her legs, on both of her arms. And she's going to be like that for six weeks. Now, simply by looking at her, you would say, oh, it's not business as usual. Like, you can't just be like, hey, type me out that email, right? Hey, take some notes. She can't. She's got casts on her arms. She's, She's broken. And seeing her, it would even awaken compassion. You accept it. It would even awaken your compassion, right, to see a woman with two broken arms, cast on arms and legs. But what about a broken heart where there is no cast? C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, The Problem of Pain, he says, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is broken. The psalmist is actually very aware of this. Look in the second part of verse 8. He says, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. And then verse 9, he says what? My eyes grow dim through sorrow. I like so appreciate how the psalmist connects his sorrow and depression to his eyes, right? He's like, like, my eyes don't even work the way they're supposed to work. Don't grow impatient with our loved ones when they're not as productive as you. And in fact, by insisting it, you can inflict a double wound, right? They're suffering darkness and they're suffering by not being enough for you. Because they're not enough for you because you think they need to buck up or pray more prayers. For the despondent, if you are one of those who are prone to these, this deep melancholy, this is how, that's how the ancients would call it. Please remember that Jesus, in the fullness of his humanity, did not speak English, and he wasn't a Westerner where productivity is the single greatest virtue. He's not mad at you. He's not impressed by your life your productivity or mad at you because you're suffering. I want you to be kind. Be kind to yourself. The Lord's not mad at you. If you're, if you're in that depression, if you got out of bed and you fed your children, we're just going to celebrate that. You just fed your children. You don't have to be the president of the student council or the city council and run a small business and volunteer at church and have a four-hour devotional and teach your kids Greek and read Moby Dick to them before they go to bed. You don't have to do that. For some who are in this place, just brushing their teeth is a win, and we're just going to celebrate that. You know, if you're in the hospital and you had just something major the, the, the doctor might limit your uh, diet when you're in recovery. He'll say, hey, listen, you don't want to shock the system. Don't go eat a steak dinner. In fact, all you can do is eat ice chips. That's all, that's all you can eat. You have to change your diet. We're only going to let you eat ice chips. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all have seen friends that have gone through that? Maybe you've gone through it? Well, when you're in recovery and depression, you've got to change your diet a little bit. And, and maybe 
asking someone just to read four hours of the Bible is too much. Maybe we have to change their diet a little bit. Maybe they need really small prayers. Maybe because they're, they're experiencing anxiety, they're their chest is tight, and they're losing their air. They can't catch up to their air. And all, they only have enough air to say, Lord, you are the air that I breathe. You are what I need. Lord, you are the air I breathe. You are what I need. That's all they can say. Maybe that's the prayer that they have to utter because they don't, they don't have enough air for anything else. Lord, you are the air that I breathe. You are what I need. And then they move into that Romans 8 territory for groans too deep for words. And that's all they got. That's all they got. Would you be patient? Let's lower these expectations. It's physically debilitating. It's important to see these small acts of faith, these small prayers as God-glorifying And so for the sufferer, for the one suffering, you know, these short prayers, or maybe you just take a shower. Maybe you just make it to church. You don't feel it, but you just make it to church. We're going to celebrate that. And for the helper, you must see that a broken spirit is worse than broken bones, even though there's no cast. Don't cause a double wound because of your impatience. There's a fourth great truth that we see here. It's an important one. There is, and here it is, listen guys, there is no comfort. There is no comfort by saying that God has not designed your darkness. There's no comfort by saying that God has not designed your darkness. You know, a few years ago, there's this real popular book by this guy named Rabbi Harold Kushner. He writes this book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was like all the rage for a while, like New York Times bestseller. It's, it's a pretty superficial book. It's kind of like, a, you know how like the shack kind of took over the world a little bit? It's kind of like shack theology. It's not all that helpful. If Rabbi Harold Kushner was with the psalmist, this is, this is what he would have said. He would have said, You know, you're a good person, and God has nothing to do with this. He would love to help you, but he can't because he's not in control. And if you just come to terms with the fact that God's not in control of everything, then you would find some relief. And the psalmist would not be amused or relieved by that logic. Nowhere in the Bible, in fact, if you look in the book of Job, for instance, he never assumed, Job never assumed that God was not absolutely in control. None of it was good. None of it felt right. It was awful. If you read Job, it was awful. The reason why Job wrestles with God, the reason why the psalmist wrestles with God why he's showing us this ugly faith is because he knows that God is in control and he can't make sense of any of this. It doesn't make sense with what he knows about God. That's why he's wrestling with him. Lord, what in the world are you doing? It's all over this. Look, follow with me. Look in your Bibles. Verse 6. 
talking to God. You have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. Verse 14, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And God, you are nowhere to be found. And I'm left with one friend. Darkness. You know, back in the book of Job, we see kind of a similar thing. Job is this, um, this righteous sufferer. He's a good man. Satan says to God, he says, listen, the only reason why Job worships you, God, is because you've given him so much. He's so stinking blessed, of course he's going to worship you. You take that all away. Let's see what happens. All right, take it all away. Let's see what happens to Job. God designed it. It was all taken away. Job suffered, and it was awful. And listen, if you read Job, Job has some really important and angry questions for God. What are you doing? And God never told him. You read all of Job. God never tells Job what he's doing. But in the end, it's said that Job never stopped being faithful. Now, Job's friends, they were so unhelpful. They are what I'm going to call harmful helpers. Harmful helpers. The friends are like, Job, what did you do? I mean, there must be some hidden sin. What did you do? You need to repent. Or, Job, just have faith. Man, buck up. See, Job's friends said some really biblical things in all the wrong ways. They were harmful helpers. The ways that we are harmful helpers with our friends who are in this place of melancholy is we just assume sin. You just assume it. Don't do that. You assume that maybe they have weak faith. They just have weak faith. They're not as strong as you. Don't do that. Maybe you say things to them like, hey, listen, God can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Don't say that. Because they're not coming out of it, y'all. You're just heaping shame on them. Just weep with those who are weeping. Why is that so hard? Weep with those who are weeping. Again, listen, I said it at the beginning. Trinity is a lot of things, but I will not let us be trite. I will not let us give pat answers to people who are really struggling, who are in that dark place. We will be a church that weeps. Don't rob our brothers and sisters of their tears. Join them in their tears. Sit with them. So here, here's what we've looked at today. God-honoring faith is often ugly faith. The darkness that we experience is both external, but it's also internal. You can cause a double wound when you do not recognize that depression and melancholy is physically inhibiting. And there is no comfort by saying that God has not designed this dark day. There's no comfort there. This psalm has no explicit hope, right? From top to bottom, it's just sad and it's messy. 
But let me do say that it is a kindness from God to give, it, give us these words for our misery. It's a kindness. Because if you're a sufferer and you feel alone and you feel like God has abandoned you and you're just like, I love you, I know you, but I don't see your face, if that's you, and then you read Psalm 88, you know you're not the first person to arrive in that valley, right? You know that you're not the first. You're not alone. Others have been there too. And in fact, by giving us Psalm 88 and making these holy words, it's dignifying your experience. God is not afraid of your tears. I do want to bring us to one implicit hope. It's not explicit, but one implicit hope. And this is how I'm going to end Psalm 88. So the suffering psalmist, he's in this pit, right? This cloud. There's no way out. And it appears that this is going to be what he has to walk until he dies. He might, his life might end in this dark place. But nevertheless, when he calls upon the Lord in verse 1, he says what? Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation. Now, there is no salvation present in this psalm. The psalm ends, and the rescue never comes. So why does he insist on that title, God of my salvation? And here's why, and listen closely. He believes that God is accomplishing something for him in his suffering, and perhaps even in his death. Now, what could this be? What could this be? Let me read one more quote from C.S. Lewis. And then we're going to see what this means. C.S. Lewis says, Let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for a moment, that God, who made these deserving people, may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed. That all this must fall from them in the end. And if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched. And therefore he, God, troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover the life to themselves and their families stands between them and the recognition of their need. He makes that life less sweet to them. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms, but he is not proud. He stoops to conquer, and he will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him and come to him because there is nothing better now to be had. God has a redemptive and even salvific use in our unyielding darkness. And what is it? Does the, does the psalm tell us? Implicitly, And let me explain. Remember I said when I outlined it that verses 10 through 12, the psalmist makes this argument. The psalmist pits God's own desires against him. What's happening? He says, like, how am I supposed to worship you, God, if I'm dead? Right? I'm almost in the grave. You put me there. How, how can your love be proclaimed if I'm dead? Right? That's kind of the logic of the psalmist. He's saying it to God, right? God, you really need to rethink this. Let me, let me tell you why God had this right. I'm going to work through verses 10 through 12. Would you look right there in your text? 
And I'm going to respond to each of his questions from the perspective of God. Verse 10, Lord, he says, Do you work wonders from the dead? As a matter of fact, yes, I do, says the Lord. Will the departed rise and praise you? As a matter of fact, they will. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Yes, it is in my own son's grave, in the grave of Jesus the Christ. Will your faithfulness be shown in a bottom, which means like abyss in the depths of hell? Yes, my son will endure hell for you. Are your wonders made known in the darkness? Verse 12, oh yes. And the darkness will accentuate the light of the gospel. Verse 12b, will your righteousness be known in the land of forgetfulness? Oh yes, everyone will see and everyone will know. Every head bowed, every knee will bend at this one See, listen, the psalmist wrote all those questions there because he could not possibly see what God could do with darkness. And indeed, God would save the whole world through the darkness coming upon his son. He thought that there were no good answers because he could not see them. And here is the implicit grace. There are answers, but you and I may likely never see them in this life. But it doesn't mean that they're not there. But until then, we do have this psalm for our misery. Spurgeon says, and remember he suffered with crippling depression. Spurgeon says that when a person is in this deep darkness, when a person is terrified because it feels like God is abandoning you into your darkness, the thought of Jesus hanging on the cross. It doesn't bring someone comfort. It doesn't bring that, that depressed person comfort because if they feel guilt because of it, right? And then to think about Jesus resurrecting, that doesn't bring the sufferer comfort because it feels like Jesus is far off. But Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was experiencing melancholy, then the sufferer says, my Savior knows me. My Savior knows me. Jesus is not the general who sends his, his soldiers off to fight his war. He's the general who leads from the front. He gets there first. He knows you. He sees you. That's where Jesus feels most real to you. And Jesus is all of those things. Let me end as I began. The God of this universe, who designed you and made you, he is not clumsy, he is not superficial, he is not surprised, and he is not capricious. He is not foolish. He is wise. He is perfectly wise, and he loves you. Amen. Amen.